Howdy, folks. My name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault Podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at vhsvaultpodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C I N E. P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud, Fast, Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personal in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, That song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network. And I told him, I love this song. I want to use it. So that way people don't have to listen to me talk. And he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were. You can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, off of their album, Believes in You. You can get the 10 song. The 10 song LP is out May 5th. Friday, May 5th. Uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. This episode is also brought to you by Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures is a legendary producer and global distributor of filmed entertainment since 1912. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 film titles with rights to an additional 2,500, featuring films by Hollywood's most respected filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese, J.J. Abrams, and Michael Bay, among others. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 films, including such classics as Star Trek, Godfather, and Indiana Jones franchises. Academy Award winners Braveheart, Forrest Gump, and Titanic, and current favorites such as The Mission Impossible and Transformers. 
franchises. Paramount Pictures distributes its titles on DVD and Blu-ray through Paramount Home Entertainment. We are happy to have them. We fucking love Paramount Pictures. podcast actually discusses movies be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings surprise twists unexpected cameos and all manner of spoilers if this doesn't appeal to you why listen to a movie podcast without further ado please enjoy our feature presentation the shameless picture show hello and welcome to another episode of the shameless picture show i am your host michael byers and joining me today is christopher kai house for those of you in the Wisconsin area, you may know Chris House as co-founder with Stephen Millick of the Twisted Dreams Film Festival, uh, Milwaukee's premier genre film festival. On top of that, he's an accomplished paranormal investigator, a filmmaker, and a historian of the enter- entertainment industry, especially that of the world of magicians. Yeah, I don't know if I can live up to that introduction, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like it was pretty apt. You, I, I, need you I, didn't tell, my, I didn't tell any lies. And No, you didn't. I, I'm going to need you for my public relations because I'm terrible when I talk about Twisted Dreams. I'm I'm told that flat out. You're terrible at promoting that thing. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Twisted Dreams. Um, now in its eighth year, can you believe it? It's eight years ago. I, I can't. Like, I remember when you first came to me with the idea for it, and I was like, "This is a great idea because we don't like we don't really have before you guys didn't really yeah. have a horror festival. We had festival festivals that included horror or had yeah. people who run it who liked horror, and Wisconsin had some kind of sprinkled in. But it was when you told me that Milwaukee didn't have one. It's almost shocking." Because you'd assume we would. Yeah, you would think so. There were horror festivals literally all around Milwaukee. You know, Madison, Appleton, Chicago, all these great cities around Milwaukee had really cool festivals, but not in Milwaukee. And we thought, you know, if nobody else is going to do it, we might as well do it ourselves. And it's been, for me, as a as someone who's helped you out with it and who's attended a lot of them, it's been exciting to watch how it's grown. You went from the Underground Collaborative which was just kind of its own fun vibe in itself. Um, A lot of that place was really, was really good to horror creatives because they also used to do um, that um, event with, with, with Alice. Uh, I don't remember what it was called. Uh, uh, Horrorama. Horrorama. Yeah. Um, And then they, they held, how was your festival? Was it two or three years? The first two years were at the underground. Yeah, the underground collaborative. It's a really cool like performance space for for performers. A lot of like uh, acting groups would rent out rooms to mm-hmm. practice their plays, and they had a big stage where you know they did a lot of comedy clubs. That's that's why it started. It was going to start as like a comedy club, but it just you know performers all around just really embraced it. It was a really cool place, really cool place in the basement of a really haunted mall in Milwaukee, the Grand Avenue Mall. Is it really? Yeah. Super I've never cool heard place. that. And uh, you know what was right next door to it? What? It's somebody that worked that worked for Marcus Theaters. That was the Marcus like business screening room. It was right next door to it. I heard it was in that building. I just didn't know quite where it was. Yeah, at. you could like <clears throat> when you walked past it, you could like smell the the redwood and the mahogany and the cigars and the leather that was in there. They had just they had these deluxe screening rooms where they would go and, and screen their films. I would love to see that. I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's still there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Every time I've tried to get Greg Marcus on this show, I always have a very 
cordial relationship with whoever's answering his emails. It just doesn't happen for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Um, I've interacted with him on social media before. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he's a, he's a really nice guy. I just figured with, guy. with his history in the world of the world of theaters, because you're like myself, you I, you also find the world of uh, classic theaters, both movie and performance, just fascinating. Yeah, and his you know he's so heavily tied to it. Um, but no, I I did I knew it was in that building. I didn't realize it was that mm-hmm. close. And yeah, yeah, the surprising. owner of the underground collaborative. Um, Matt was telling me that he used to sometimes UPS would deliver their uh, DCPs, the digital cinema present packages, whatever. Um, and sometimes they would drop them off with him and the Marcus people would like freak out and like go off on him. On, on Matt? He, he on wasn't Matt doing for, anything. Yeah, he's like, oh, well, I just took it. But yeah, that's that's back in the days where they used to hand deliver, you know, <laughs> reels of films in like cases probably. I remember the amount of times that I went to Southgate Theater before digital took over <clears throat> and I would just see film like uh, the, the the film boxes just sitting in the front. Yeah. It's like nothing uh, nothing stopping someone from just running off with this except for two things. Like what will stop me from running off with it is fear of being caught. Right. Uh and then two, the people who don't have the fear of getting caught have no interest. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, that was you, kind of it was something like it. that. I mean, how would you play something like that? I don't you, know. You I mean, wouldn't. it'd be cool to have. Yeah, like you I, know, I know people that collect thirty-five millimeter trailers of films, but I had an opportunity at it. one point to purchase a thirty-five millimeter print of one of Herschel Gordon Lewis's films. Oh wow! And I just couldn't afford it, and his price was stupidly reasonable. He was asking like five grand. Which is not bad for a film print, but it was uh, it was back when I was living like just pay, barely paycheck to paycheck. It's like there's no way I can even fathom a way to make this happen, and I don't even know what happened to that guy, or you know if if he ended up selling it. But that's like my biggest regret. And then um, and then Herschel died not too long after that. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I wasn't to blame. Well, clearly you cursed him, Mike. You should have bought the film, and maybe you would have got a couple extra years. Clearly, clearly, that's what I did wrong. So this is uh, the eighth year of the festival. Um, I know you guys are still in because it's uh, this October, correct? Yep. I know you guys are still in planning. You can't probably can't talk about much, but is there anything exciting that you are able to talk about? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this year it's the fiftieth anniversary of the George Romero unsung classic, The Crazies. Right? I it's probably the, the film that nobody talks about from George, uh, but it's 50 years, 50 years ago, uh, this film came out. So we're going to screen that at Twisted Dreams. And we've got Lynn Lowry, one of the stars mm. of the crazy. She's going to be there all weekend. That's awesome. So we're definitely going to do that. We're going to have uh, grindhouse teas back. They're going to okay. do a show before the crazies. We had them last year at the festival. They did a really, really cool burlesque show, horror themed burlesque show. So we're going to do that again. That's awesome. I'm curious to see if they're going to do something that ties into the crazies. <laughs> And Katie said that she was going to do a special show for whatever movie we, we play. So she knows it's the crazies. So we'll see, we'll see what she does. So I made the poor decision of, uh, so I, the, when there's filmmakers, I like, like Romero. Um, I try to keep films in their filmography that I haven't seen yet. Just so I always feel like I have something I can discover. Yeah. And um, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic 
I wanted to back before we thought it was going to become anything. I wanted to watch something pandemic themed. So I made the poor decision that right at the beginning of the pandemic to watch the crazies. And it was a very sobering experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that's quite a pandemic movie to watch. Yeah. So that I made that, I made that mistake and it's stuck with me ever since I, I, it's easy to say. Well, I, there's like you can pick out a handful of, of movies from Romero's um, oeuvre and mm. say it's a masterpiece, but that one's definitely a, one that people aren't talking about enough. That I think is could easily be one of his masterpiece films. I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's an underrated classic. Another one that I really like of his that nobody talks about is Night Riders. Oh, just a crazy movie that and it's it has no right existing like the stunts that they did in that I'm, it's a miracle nobody was killed during that. we we did that for this for this show because i knew i really wanted to watch it and um i i i chose it for that reason and what i think works so well about that film is it's an insane plot you know yeah. the idea of like these uh jousters riding motorcycles should be like a really trauma-esque plot, but it's delivered of such earnestness mm-hmm. and seriousness that it's, I love that movie. Yeah. I, I just, I think yeah. it's, it's incredible. And Ed Harris in that movie is so fucking good. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Romero is such an auteur. When you see his films, you like, you know, it's a George Romero film, no matter what genre it is, you know, you can see Knight Riders and it. that's a George Romero film. It's it, it's one of the most batshit crazy movies I think I've ever seen. And like I said, it's a miracle nobody was killed in those motorcycle stunts. Even to this day, those are some of the the craziest stunts I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I I completely agree. It, it'd be tied with that in the first Mad Max. There's a couple like stunts in that yeah. first Mad Max film. You know, because it's it's easy to look at something like Fury Road. But they had so many more precautions on that film. Yeah. But you look at Knight Riders or you look at the first Mad Max, they had no money. And doing some of these stunts, it's like you said, it's a, it's amazing that no one died yeah. on any of these films. And it's the it's amazing just to look at the the history of film and see how few deaths there have been on set. Like there's been plenty, don't get me wrong. Right. But yeah. not nearly as many as there should have been considering some of this shit that have has happened on film sets. No, I mean and when there is a death, like it's big news. Like when Vic Morrow died on the Twilight Zone set, that was big news. So anytime somebody does die, you know, horribly, it, it does make big news. So we hear about it. Um but yeah, we don't there's not many. I mean Helena Hutchins was maybe the last big name that was killed on a set. Yeah. But I'm I'm excited for this year of the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. I'll definitely be buying a ticket to the crazies. I'm looking forward to that one. And I've never had a chance to meet Lynn Lowry. So if anyone who's listening to this is in or around the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, do yourself a favor and make sure you come out and check out the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. Not only just for the crazies, but uh, I, you and Steven are, are really smart programmers and you always just find a nice mixture of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I give credit to Steve. He's definitely a better programmer than I do. So I usually defer to his. If he, if he wants something in the festival, unless I really don't like it, um, we'll program it. So he's really the the one to do things. To and it still it still surprises me too. The 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 I still remember you. I think it was like your first or second year. You did a um a block of just for lack of better terms, just really fucked up horror films. And I remember you telling me. He's like, oh, that's all Steve. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was Steve's Steve idea. Like, he's such a nice guy, and like, he seems so clean cut. But the dude's got a dark side. 
<laughs> you know, when he programs a batshit crazy block of films, they're going to be batshit crazy. And yeah, because like the, some of those films tr- were trying for me, and I've seen so much, but you watch yeah. enough of them back at the back, it's like, oh man, knowing Steve programmed this, I don't want to ever piss him off. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, this year it's going to be more of the same. You know, our submissions are going to end on June 30th, and we've got a lot of movies to watch in the next month before we send out notifications. But it's going to be a good year. You know, if you're in, if you're in the area, definitely check it out. And if you're not in the area, hop on a plane, come see us. Yeah, like I feel like people have traveled for your festival at this. Oh point. yeah, yeah, we've had people come from Canada, mm-hmm. um, California, all over, all over the place. So this is definitely something you guys should be getting. Like I said, I don't want to say on the ground floor because they've been around for eight years. But if you haven't paid your two bits to come to the Twisted Dreams Film Festival, this might be the year to do it. That being said, it's like you've had some phenomenal years. Like you, like last year, you had Lloyd Coffin there, and you had um, I'm blanking on the name, um, Joe Bob. Joe Bob was here a couple. No, no, you had pandemic. Yes, you had Joe Bob here, but then last year you also had. Oh, and Brink Stevens. Brink Stevens was here. Yes. Um, So you've had some great guests, and that Joe Bob night—that was insane. That was that was that was the most full I've ever seen the Times Theater. Yeah, we sold out. We sold the theater out. Looking back on that, I think we should have had a bigger theater, um, definitely. Um, But yeah, we didn't expect to sell that many tickets. You know, we just thought it would be a small show. But and at that point, like Joe Bob had come back, but he hadn't blown up just quite yet he was just on the precipice of really blowing up yeah it was just yeah. before because like i feel like if you were to do it now you could probably sell out the avalon yeah i think so I, I we think probably so. could have sold out the avalon last time too and we charged we didn't charge much for tickets we're not in this for like a profit um <clears throat> joe bob just did a show prior to our festival he did another festival i can't i'm blanking on the name of the festival but tickets were reselling for like 150 dollars. it was crazy we were selling our tickets for 20 bucks you know? yeah that, that's so I, we lost a lot of money on that, but it was worth it to bring him and have that kind of experience and get that kind of exposure for the festival. It was an investment for us, I think. No, oh, definitely. Um, so before we get to the topic of, of the uh, what we're discussing today, was there anything else you wanted to talk about with, in terms of the festival or anything else you're up to? Uh, we'll be holding the world premiere of uh, the documentary feature, I'm Your Host, which uh, I'm proud oh. to be producing. Um it's a, it's a documentary of the local horror hosts, the Kenosha horror hosts. Really, Doctor Destruction, Deadger, uh, Celeste, all those uh, all those Kenosha horror hosts on their own documentary. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I I can't wait to see that. I, as you know, I'm also a big fan of horror hosts. That's yep. Um, actually, how I met a lot of those guys was I was making a movie about it, and um that sounds great so is it is it do you kind of you go into the history as well or are you talking about more contemporary or um more contemporary yeah it's it's being directed by alicia krupski i think i'm saying her last name right but um it's gonna it's gonna talk about the history of dr destruction the history of Deadger, uh the history of hex and arcane those three shows um and uh it's 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 gonna go into the history of those shows and really talk about the personal I don't. I don't want to like give too much away, but you know the the personal beef between horror hosts. It's going to mm-hmm. kind of delve delve into that a little bit too. But um, that it should just, be really good. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I haven't seen it yet, so because Doctor Destruction has been on for a long time at this twenty two years. Yeah, this is his twenty second year. Yeah, and the first time I saw him, it was on back when Mata Community Media was still around. Yeah, uh, I turned on, and I think he was doing like a Halloween special, and. 
it was, I think they were shooting with Mattis cameras at the time, which, which weren't that great. Everything was kind of like blurry. And I mm-hmm. didn't quite know what I was looking at, but I remember his distinct voice. And that's how I knew it was Dr. Destruction. Yeah. Yeah. They had, at the time, they had those big TV cameras that you see on like mm-hmm. TV news studios. Um, <clears throat> now they've got better equipment. But yeah, it, it's, I don't know, horror host shows are, they're, they're funny. I, I love horror host shows. Like, I love horror hosts. Do you have a favorite? It doesn't have to be necessarily local. Um, I do. Yeah, Too Loose No Neck, because that was my horror host growing up. You know, Too Loose Too Loose was Milwaukee's horror host. I've never heard of him. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was our horror host late seventies through the about the mid eighties. Okay, I'll have to look up some of his stuff. Yeah, Wild Times, and I, I got to hear a lot of backstage stories from the Doc because the Doc had him on his show as a host or as a, as a guest. That's awesome. So, yeah, yeah, but you know, everybody, every every town, every city, they have their own horror hosts, and it's just there. There's so many of them out there, so and, many. And the doc is just—he was nominated for the Horror Host Hall of Fame this year, so we're excited about that. That's awesome, and he deserves it. He's been yeah. he's been kind of keeping it going, and I've been um, lucky enough to be on his show uh, two or three times. He, uh, I was on his show, and he was showing like episodes of. I think Dark Shadows before the movie before the Tim Burton movie came out, and I was like, "How are you able to show this? Do you have the rights to this?" He's like, "Yeah, no, no one gives a shit. Nobody, <laughs> no one's nobody watching." Cares. Yeah, I've seen horror hosts, you know, play all kinds of new horror films, and like, I don't think you got the rights for that, but they don't, they don't care. No, because by the time anyone catches on, it's gone. <clears throat> right? Yeah, like the, the the big guys like Count Count Gord Duvall who are doing it on the internet every week. You know, they're. It's a little harder for them, but if you're just on television and there's not a like a stream of it saved somewhere, right? No, yeah. I remember when I, I when I was producing the doc shows, um, we he would pick out the movies, I would download them, and then I would you know cut the shows together, and then he picks out one film. I didn't know it was. I can't remember what it is, but it wasn't public domain, right? It was some old Japanese Godzilla knockoff movie. And man, I got roasted when I when I posted that. Every all the other horror hosts were like, "That's not public domain. That's not public." I got called out by every horror host imaginable. So interesting. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that you got you you you're the one who got in trouble for some reason. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, like, that that kind of kept a low profile during those days. But yeah, anytime we'd get a flag on YouTube, we'd get a lot of nicks on YouTube for like copyright claims. But it, you know, for music or whatever, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, I my, my back when we had a video version of this show, we'd get dinged all the time for if we were show the showing the trailer or whatnot. But I was like, I don't yep. get it. We're showing the trailer. We're advertising for you. Yeah, we we um, before we started the festival, we had a thing called Milwaukee Movie Talk, which was a social media mm. page, and we had a YouTube page. Too. I remember we, this. Yeah, we posted a lot of um, trailers too, but we we got in trouble. Like we had good relations with some of the studios; they didn't mind. But yeah, we we would get in trouble. It's weird, you know. They don't want you to post their trailers and advertise for them. I figured. Okay. I figured if they're gonna be if they're gonna be okay with anything, it would be the trailer because that that's mm-hmm. what it was built for. Did you hear that somebody just <clears throat> on Twitter uploaded the entire Flash movie? No. It was up for like eight hours. Yeah, like that's longer 7. than I was expecting with the way that these bots are crawling. Like, yeah. I have uploaded things to TikTok and have gotten dinged within five minutes, and that was up for eight hours. One point seven million people watched it while it was on Twitter. It was crazy. Wow. Did you see the Flash? Not yet. Yeah, I, I saw it. I was I was there. I saw it. I saw it twice. 
Uh, it was good the first time, not so much the second time. So I think it's going to be a forgotten about film pretty soon. What didn't gravitate with you the second time? I uh, just it didn't. It wasn't as fun. You know, the first time I saw it, it was fun because, you know, seeing Keaton as Batman, that, that was epic. But it just it didn't have any replayability for me in my head. You know, I just, get that. And sometimes I get sweat. I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I'll be in, especially if I go see something in the theater, I'll get swept up in the movie. Right. I get swept up in movies that aren't even that good, and I'll just—I yeah. think it's because I just enjoy watching movies. Mm-hmm. Then I'll get swept up in them and like them more the first time than I do the second. I remember that happened with Jurassic World. I think I was just excited to see dinosaurs on the big screen again. That I had a—I had a great time with that movie, and then every time I've watched mm-hmm. it since, like I just like it less and less. But it, uh, even though I have been doing this show for about seven years now at this point. And I talk about movies on a, a biweekly basis. I can still turn off my my critic brain and just go and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I like movies like that. You can just turn your brain off and just watch a movie and have fun, like popcorn flicks. Yeah. You know, like uh, the new Transformers movie is a perfect example. It, it's a mm-hmm. stupid movie. It's really dumb, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, and that, all those movies. That's just, that's exactly that franchise. Right. It's a, right. they're stupid movies. Bumblebee's not. That one's actually really good. That, yeah, um, Bumblebee was really good. But they're stupid movies, but they're just they're fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I've got tickets for Indy Five on on Thursday, and everybody's telling me how stupid it is and how bad it is. I just I just want to see the movie. I'm gonna go see it. I, I my wife had up up until recently had only ever seen the first one, so we're working through the series. Um, I think we still have two more left. Uh, but I'm excited for it. Yeah, I could just I. At this point, is I don't know. I feel like at this point, as long as it, do, it doesn't feel like it was a waste of my time, which doesn't happen often, mm-hmm. I'll feel like I would have gotten my money's worth out of it. Right, right. But um, how about we get on to the topic? The topic at hand, yeah. Let's yes. do it. Let's All do right. It. So on today's of the shame, oh, I can't talk. On today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, we'll be taking on a film that's up for contention as being one of the greatest gangster films of all time, and the final film by master filmmaker Sergio Leone, Once Upon a Time in America. David Noodles Aronson is returning to Manhattan's Lower East Side after being in hiding for 35 years. Noodles in his youth, was a Prohibition-era gangster that had aspirations of running New York City with his group of friends that he's had since childhood. Once Upon a Time in America chronicles Noodle's life starting as a young Jewish child who uses crime as a way to get by to his life as a bootlegger and the eventual fall of the crime empire he created with his childhood friends. An epic in every sense of the word, Once Upon a Time in America explores the themes sorry, sorry, explore themes that range from greed, love, friendships, and betrayals in its nearly four-hour runtime. The film, upon its release, was famously panned by critics. The film, which was originally released theatrically, was a butchered version of Leone's vision, which ran around two and a half hours, and the cuts were made without Leone's permission. Leone's original vision for the film received a standing o- sorry, his original version of the film received a standing ovation during its premiere at Cannes, and this is a time when standing ovations weren't as common as they are now. When it was finally made available for critics to see, Many opinions had changed. Pauline Kale, the film critic for The New Yorker, said that she had never seen a worse case of butchering in a film. Once Upon a Time in America was written by six writers in total, Leone mm-hmm. being one of them, based on a book called The Hoods by Harry Gray about his life growing up in New York City. Leone regulars Ennio Morricone and Tonino 
Deli Kali, if I'm pronouncing that correct, worked on the film's music and cinematography, respectively, and the film was a joint American and Italian production where it was shot in both countries. The film has an all-star cast that includes Robert De Niro, James Woods, Elizabeth McGovern, Joe Pesci, Burt Young, Treat Williams, Tuesday Weld, Danny Aiello, playing Danny Aiello, <laughs> William Forsythe, and Jennifer Connelly as a young Deborah. From 1984, directed by Sergio Leone, this is Once Upon a Time in America. I'm not interested in your friends in high places, and I don't trust politicians. No, if we listened to you, we'd still be rolling drunks for a living. Are you broke? You'll carry that stink of the streets with you the rest of your life. I like the stink of the streets. It makes me feel good. I like the smell it. It opens up my lungs. Arnon Milshan presents a Sergio Leone film starring Robert De Niro, Once Upon a Time in America. The story of friends. As boys, they made a pact to share their fortunes. Agreed. Their loves. And their lives. You'll put up and you'll shut up. You hear nothing and you see nothing. Just like you did for Bugsy. You was better off you stayed in the Bronx. As men, they shared a dream. I swear to God, Noodles, you and me together, we can make it come true. To rise together from poverty to power. There they are, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A dream they followed through two decades that changed the nation. You ever think of setting yourselves up in business? Oh my God! They forged an empire built on greed, violence, and betrayal. Today they ask us to get rid of Joe. Tomorrow they ask me to get rid of you. Is that okay with you? Because it's not okay with me. Open it! You want to go swimming? Yeah, let's go for a swim. We're going to need you guys today. You're the only person that I've ever cared about. Maybe Sharky was right. Maybe I ought to just dump you. He's going to do this. He's going to do it with or without you. It began as a dream. It grew to an empire. It ended as a mystery that refused to die. Robert De Niro, James Woods, Elizabeth McGovern, Joe Pesci, Burt Young, Tuesday Weld, and Treat Williams in a Sergio Leone film, Once Upon a Time in America. This is actually the third film in his Once Upon a Time trilogy. It is a trilogy. Uh, Once Upon a Time, time in the, in the West, West, Ducky Sucker, and Once Upon a Time in America. What is the alternate title for Ducky Sucker? I don't know, but I just, I actually just found that out because uh, I've not seen that one. I feel yeah, like I, I didn't I either. Like I but to. yeah, Lee Van, uh, Rod Steiger, James Colburn, uh, a low life bandit, and IRA explosives, expert rebel against the government and become heroes of the Mexican Revolution. It's, it's interesting, too, um, <clears throat> that looking at his career, Leone has direct has only directed, I believe, seven films, mm-hmm. and only yeah. two of those weren't westerns. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it's interesting um, that one. I thought he, I honestly had thought he had directed more films. He'd been involved in the film industry. He had done a lot of different jobs. Like he has a really storied career. But I'm surprised that because you look at some of these filmmakers, like Enzo G. Castellari, he's directed like a hundred fucking movies. Mm-hmm. And 
Leone's only done seven. And it's actually kind of surprising. And then also that he had only done two non-westerns. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at his IMDb. It looks like he did uh he did eight films. There was one film he was uncredited for, Sodom and Gomorrah. Gotcha. In 1962. But yeah, he doesn't have a very large um film film history. And you know, every film that he's made is like a classic. Yeah, like said, the only one that made like that I'm just I'm just not familiar with is Duck You Sucker. Well, not, neither I, am I, but now I have to see it. And it's it's also interesting too that there was a 13 year gap between Duck You Sucker and Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah. So anyway, so I asked you to be on this show because when uh, I had found out my co-host Nick was going to step away from the show, and I just. No one wants to listen to one person talk on a podcast. It's, you know, unless you're Mark Marin, it can just, you know, talk for endless amount of time. Most things are better with a guest. And I asked you to be on, on this show. And this was a movie that I wanted to discuss because I had never seen it. And you had chose this one. Do you have a relationship with this movie? Is there a reason you chose this one? Or is this just one you wanted to see? Um, this is, well, this is a film I saw actually not long ago for the first time. I had grown up. I knew about this movie growing up, you know, and I would see it on cable and I would, I was, that's boring i'm gonna turn that off but i you know i just actually sat down and watched it start to end just a few years ago and uh i was really blown away like why didn't i watch this earlier why didn't i see this earlier um it's one of those films that like it's an robert de niro was so good in this movie that this isn't this is a film that isn't talked about nearly as much as it should you know this is probably sergio leone's magnum opus you know this is his citizen kane this should this this film deserves to be talked about it deserves mm-hmm. to be remembered. Yeah, it's it is it's it's interesting because I think you you hit the nail right on the head where it is it's simultaneously a film that's not talked about enough, but it also does have a reputation. Yeah, like, I knew yeah. about this film. I've you know that that iconic cover of the kids walking um, between those buildings. I think that's the Manhattan Bridge. I don't mm-hmm. know New York very well. Um, you know, I'd known that image and I had known about this movie, but that was about it. Like, I didn't know anything about this movie. I didn't know it was about Jewish gangsters. I didn't even know James Woods was in this movie until until mm-hmm. I started and I saw the credits and I saw all the people in this movie. Yeah, it's got a really great cast. Yeah. And what I found, so I, I, I liked the movie a lot. I have some qualms with it that I think stopped me from from loving it. Um. But there are just there's moments in this movie that are just been stuck in my brain since I saw it. I, I watched it um, last week. And for me, what really sticks out is it doesn't necessarily feel like Leone was was interested in making a gangster film in that I don't feel like he cares about reality. It felt like he wanted to make a fairy tale yeah, about yeah. gangsters. In a way that almost like his westerns feel like less interested in the factual world of the old west and more so about the tall tales of it. Because mm-hmm. like I just think of those shots of like um, Jennifer Connelly dancing, like just they just feel magical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So you know, Sir, uh, Sergio, this film had started development in the '60s, and you know, Leon was offered the chance to direct The Godfather. <clears throat> but he turned it down and he regretted that. And that's kind of how this got 
the ball rolling. You know, he really regretted not taking the, the, the Godfather. So he wanted to make his own Godfather. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting, especially in this time period from, you know, the late sixties up to about this point in the eighties, studios were taking chances on all essentially big budget art films. That's kind of what this is. Apocalypse yeah. Now was very much that way. It's look no further than Popeye. I mean that that right there that sums it up. And it's 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 interesting that there was a period of time where they'd spend this kind of money on a film like this because it's that these are not the type of films that studios are spending money on now. Right. You know they'll get a right. fraction of of a budget for a movie like this oh you want to make a well because originally he wanted it to be two three-hour movies yeah yeah the, the, well the original cut i think was like 10 hours he wanted like two six-hour long movies and the studio was like no so uh it was released in europe i think the four and a half hour cut was released in europe and then they cut it down to two and a half well yeah two and a half hours for the u.s and it just completely bombed and then uh when it was released on VHS, then they released the longer cut on VHS. And there's mm-hmm. actually a Martin Scorsese cut, which I just found out about. Really? I, I've got to see. Yeah, it's got more character exposition in it. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's on video or if it's on streaming, but I, I know it exists and I, I know I want to see it now. I know. I, I, I would love to see that, especially because he has such a deep admiration and love mm-hmm. for Leone. And one thing that I was trying to like, figure out when i was researching this film is i I guess i just assumed because of the cast that scorsese had something to do with the production of this film it it seems like it doesn't it i mean it's this this film has uh, it's a gangster film with robert de niro joe pesci surely martin scorsese is involved it it feels like a scorsese film but yeah it's and and surprisingly he doesn't because right i was i have in my notes that this is uh technically Leone's first American film. And I say technically because all of his films had been released in America. Yeah. And famously for those of you listening who don't realize all Italian films are dubbed because they don't shoot sync sound on Italian sets. Mm-hmm. They might now, but they didn't then. And actually Scorsese has a great story about hanging out with uh, Fellini on one of his sets. And he was just stressed out because like Fellini's working of his actors and shooting scenes and the grips are all standing around smoking cigarettes, having conversations. And he's like, why are you all talking? Cause he's like, cause we're not rolling sound. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so all Italian films are technically um, are, are dubbed, even, dubbed, yeah. you know, the, the, their original language, any American actors, they're all dubbed. So because of that, all of his films have played in the United States in English and he, usually casts a lot of American actors, but to my knowledge, I think this might be his first or maybe his only film that was made in part with an American studio. Maybe I'm wrong on that one. No, um, you're right. This was a co-production between America and Italy um, studios in America and Italy. Uh, I just learned that too, but yeah, you're right. But what, what, continue, please. This just reminds me of like uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, Rick Dalton, retired to do italian yes. westerns and yes that's uh that's so great that movie is great if you are a nerd for film history because yeah yeah i love that movie but then i'm like i don't know anyone who's not a movie nerd if they're gonna mm-hmm. love this movie yeah yeah that's one movie that i can just put in and watch and just enjoy mm-hmm. myself I, I you know i it's 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 just 
just a great movie. It's probably one. I don't know. It's probably my favorite um, Tarantino films. It might be mine too. to really think about it. That it was so good. Like Brad Pitt and, and Leonardo DiCaprio were just they were perfect in that movie. I love that. I agree. But like what I've been trying to figure out with this movie is like I want to know like how this came to be. So yes, I as you said, I do know he had been making he had been working on this film in some sense since the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I just I'm 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 really curious how it came to be that he got all the resources he did because uh, I I feel like even at this point he. Um, Leone never spoke a word of English. He always used translators. Right. Um, so to have this big budget co-produced film with all this big talent, because like, because kind of like Rick Dalton and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a lot of times people went to Italy to make these cheapy little movies, not mm-hmm. big epics like this. Yeah, yeah. The budget on this, I think, was thirty million, which in in that time that was astronomical. Was it? Mm-hmm big budget so yeah it, and you know part of me thinks that maybe there were too many screenwriters in this because it, sometimes it felt a little bloated you know there was a lot going on a lot of story to unpack you know the, was it the, all the writers that were involved in this I, I don't know the editor in me just kept thinking that what well, i kept thinking it's like how to tweak some of this how to cut it mm-hmm. down and, and i hate saying that because it's like the idea of like recutting a film that's considered to be a masterpiece but there was definitely some some, some bloat, bloat to this on, yeah. too. Um, um, and then with how much there was in this film, I still feel like there were aspects that weren't touched on enough. Like, so my favorite part of this film was I loved the beginning. I loved all the stuff with them as children. It felt mm-hmm. very much like a true foe. I felt like I was watching the 400 blows, but with, you know, spunky little, uh, Jewish gangster kids dancing around playing their pan flute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That. The, yeah. That scene that they're running down. They're, the pan flute's playing. They're running down, and they see Bugsy. Like that's probably my favorite scene in the whole film. Yeah. Like, that's that, that's just a great scene. And then just I, I was like, my jaw was agape when they killed the the littlest one. Yeah. Because uh, I just didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Like I do yeah. know. Like I knew that all these these characters are probably going to have some grim fate we hadn't found that out yet but i was pretty i wasn't expecting it to happen to, for one of them so soon mm-hmm. like i loved all that i loved seeing how these relationships were built um and just seeing a part of like new york and a part of like crime that we don't normally get to see um and then just kind of heartbreaking that scene of um of noodles being taken off to jail and his friends just all stand against that wall and just the way that leone feels yeah. the frame with his widescreen photography, I think is just mm-hmm. is beautiful. Yeah, I agree. But I then agree. where I feel like some of the my issues come in with it is we have these really we have these these characters who have really strong I'm trying to get the right word, like characterizations. But some of their internal conflict, I don't feel like is really explored to the depth that I wish it was. Yeah. And apparently in the Scorsese cut, uh, there's a lot more character exposition that gets uh, gets some screen time. Like we, we learn more about Joe Pesci's character. Um, he's kind of an, an enigma, I think, in the film. But yeah, in, he just the, we know he's some powerful boss, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot more Martin Scorsese or Joe Pesci that got edited out. Um but yeah, I, I I don't know. I think that I'm really curious to see the theatrical cut of this. 
uh, the Me American too. theatrical cut. I don't know if that's available, but I'm I'm curious what they all cut out. I have I had heard that the focus of the of that <clears throat> film is even was completely different too, because in the yeah. the version that I think we both watched, uh, Robert De Niro's character is the focus, but in the in the theatrical cut, Max is the focus of that film. And yeah, that that sounds that sounds weird. I don't, we'll yeah. talk about the ending. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the ending, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's available. I'd like to see it. I really want to see the Scorsese cut. Yeah, I'm, 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 I want to do some digging and see if it's a, if even if it's just on VHS. I just want to see right. that that theatrical cut. But my the the issues <laughs> I had with the film, and it's not to detract from the film. That's not to say that you know this you know, it's now a terrible film because of these issues with it, but I wanted more between the relationship of, uh, of Max and noodles. As much as we got with them, I feel like their, their falling out from each other is not explored as well as I feel like it could have been. I feel like it just, it kind of comes out of left field in a way, other than the fact that noodles had been gone for what, 10 years. But I feel like I spend more time, inferring what could have been the issue than being being shown what the issues are right and i don't you know i don't necessarily need a scene of them saying i hate you because of these reasons i just wanted more of it or even um max having an issue with being called crazy that eventually has a payoff but the first time it comes up is near the end of the film and you feel like that should have been weaved in a little bit more throughout um and then I'm just gonna I'm gonna just throw it out on the table now. I had a really hard time with all the sexual violence in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it was pretty unfiltered, um, even especially for its time. Mm-hmm. And in a way that me and my me and my wife were talking about it, I feel like if they really felt that that was an important aspect to have for 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 this character, it could have been treated in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just. It's really hard for me to, um, with Leone having having a character who is sexually assaulted by another character, and then for them to present her as having enjoyed it, like that's all just kind of ucky and just that. Yeah, that's that's hard to and <clears throat> hard to get behind. And yeah, yeah. So some of that, some of that stuff, and some of the the loose connections between characters hurt the film a little bit for me, but there mm-hmm. was still so much in this film that did wow me, did blow me away, especially except that first half of the film and the way that Leone just kind of effortlessly transitions between time periods. Like his transitions in this film are phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about the ending. Okay. Uh, I want to get to the ending. No, all right, let's um, do it. What tell do me what you think of it. What do you think of the ending? What specifically, what part of the ending? Uh, I think I know which one you're talking about, but Max, uh, Uh, Max in the the truck, the truck disappearing. What, what, what was your interpretation? Because this is like, this is debated among film scholars. This is like, this is big conversation here that we're going to have. What did you think? So the way I took the ending is I feel like I, 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 I'm flip-flopping between two, two thoughts on it. Uh, part of me believes it's very literal and he somehow jumped into the back of that truck and, and killed himself. But that feels almost too easy. Um, where, where I've been thinking about it 
over the last couple of days because I'm still thinking about that fucking mm-hmm. ending. Yeah, yeah. Um, ties more into the final shot of the film of De Niro cutting back in time and being in this opium days. There's a part of me that believes Max never existed in that scene. And it's all just kind of a, a part of me believes that most of this film didn't exist. And it's all just De Niro in an opium days picturing w- yep. what his future could be. But I, I almost choose to believe that De Niro was talking to someone in that scene, but I don't know if it was Max. So I, I think that uh, it was all just a whole, an, an opium dream. I, I think that older Older noodles was all just a hallucination. It was all just his opium fever dream. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of that ever existed. You know, Max, I don't think, I think Max was dead when he, you know, when he supposedly died, burned up, whatever. Mm-hmm. I felt that Max is dead. And this is all just noodles playing out what could have been in his head. Yeah. And that's that for me, that's what makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, because if you, if you, granted, I don't think, Sergio Leone gave a fuck about logistics while making this film. No. Um, but it makes things make more sense if you believe the opium dream theory. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one being, why the fuck would there still be a million dollars inside one of those uh, lockers in Grand Central State, or wherever the fuck it was at, years, like 35 years later? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Pauline Kale said in her in her review that so I, I imagine no one told. Um, I imagine someone on set reminded Leone that those things get emptied out every seventy-two hours. But I don't think he gave a fuck. No, no Leone was asked about that. He was asked if it, <clears throat> the second half of the film was a, was an opium dream, and he's like, maybe that's a good theory. Yeah, he, he would never confirm. Or he did leave anything. it in, in vague intentionally, and the reason that the idea that Max jumping into it and killing himself just never sat well with me is one this movie did not shy from from bloodshed you know it's it's kind of tame compared to what we have now but there's hell that scene where the guy gets popped in the eye with the 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 diamond like Mm -hmm. magnifying glass in his eye that was surprising even now um but i i find it hard to believe that if Max would have really jumped in the back of that truck somehow, like a fucking gazelle. Uh, there that there would be some trace of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I said I truly just believe that he's hallucinating, and uh, that as I said, there was no Max, and I think that would also explain kind of like the dreamlike quality and the way that it weaves in and out of past and present and. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I heard was another thing with the theatrical cut is everything's in chronological order, which sounds boring as fuck. It'd be like watching Pulp Fiction in chronological order. Who wants to do mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, w- I was really thinking about that, the ending, when I first saw this, and I thought, you know, so is that what Max, or maybe what Noodles thinks of Max? Maybe Noodles thinks Max is garbage, so that's why he's in a garbage mm-hmm. truck. But when they you know when they're whatever happened happened they they were on good terms right like max and noodles were on good terms when max died so why would he yeah on good terms as far as max is to be concerned like yeah they were on good terms they had they had they're like brothers they had some they had some fights amongst themselves but i never really felt like they had 
anything that was driving a wedge between them, other than the fact that Noodles didn't want to do that job. Yeah. And I also choose to believe the Opium Dream thought because it makes the whole idea of Max faking his death and somehow coming back as a politician far more palpable mm-hmm. and easy to wrap my mind around because that twist almost took me out of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I really liked the, the, the use of the actor that played young Max coming mm-hmm. back as playing, you know, Max's son potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember noticing that. I was like, oh, that's the same kid. That's an interesting choice. But just the, the, the whole idea that, like I said, he faked his death, was able to successfully create a new identity, get into politics, and then, like, all with a fake identity, just... Yeah, the, the amount of weird things that this guy was... This, this, that Max was able to do, like... It. I I don't know. I, that just leans me more towards the it's a fever dream because this, this is just crazy what this guy's done. You know, created a new identity, became a politician. You know, I don't. Know. I you, you know it's something that we'll never get an answer to. You know, we're, we're going to debate this till the end of time. Uh, are there any? So have you have you done any like digging on the ending? Are there thoughts besides the literal version and you know the fever dream ending? It, it's. It's usually just the fever dream or yeah, the dude just jumped into a, a garbage truck and killed himself. You know, it's, it's one or the other. I don't know. And like, I, I think another reason that jumping into the garbage truck just doesn't feel right is Leone is a masterful filmmaker in terms of the way he moves the camera, the way he blocks his actors. And like I said, I know he, sh- he shot it vague intentionally, but I don't feel like there's, if, if Leone truly believed that Max jumped in the back of that truck. I don't think that's how Sergio Leone would have shot that scene. No. Yeah. I don't think so. There are people that think that Max just ran really quick back into the gate as the truck was passing, which would be hysterical to see the opposite side of it. Right. Yeah. Like I'd I'd want to see that. (laughs) Especially because it it almost feels like the truck's waking up as noodles is leaving. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just feel like the more we, the more me and you talk about it, the more and more I just, I'm truly convinced that none of that is real. Yeah, you know, now I'm thinking that does one of the other cuts have more to that scene? I, I don't know. Yeah, I would, I would love to see it too. Like, I would maybe they have to... an alternate view, like a view from behind the, the truck, and then we get to see what happens to Max. And then it's the the whole conversation scene between Max and Noodles in the scene prior. Yeah, uh, you know, Max is addressing Noodles the entire time, and then Noodles the entire time is at first is just referring to him as uh, Mr. Bailey. And at first, I thought mm-hmm. he was doing that just to take the piss from him, you know, just piss him off a little bit. Because at first, I was like, "There's no way he doesn't recognize his friend." And I was like, "Oh, well, he must be doing this to piss him off." But it's like, "Well, there's no reason to do because there's no way there's no one around like listening." So I just, I feel like it's just, it's almost like an unreliable narrator. Yeah. And that's kind of where, where I've settled on to it. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Um, I, I just, I think that the whole thing was a fever dream. I think it was just an all an opium hallucination. So every, all the older noodles, you know, story was just in his head. 
Yeah, I, that's what makes sense to me. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, I wanted to um, talk about the way that we only build tension throughout this film. I There's multiple uses of it, but the one that really stuck out with me is near the beginning when um, he's sneaking back. Uh, he, he's like sneaking into Moe's... Um, I guess bar and there's that scene of the, of the elevator and they're just waiting for the elevator and just the way that that scene plays out and you're just waiting and waiting and the way it just builds tension. I just, I it's times like that, that I'm like, this guy's a fucking masterful filmmaker and mm-hmm. it's a shame that he died five years after this. Cause he's still at the top of his game. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. The cinematography was just amazing in this film too. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the cinematographer, but oh, that was um, I, j- I said it in my intro, uh, Torino Delicali. Mm-hmm. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, sorry, Tonino Delicali. Uh, he actually he worked with um, Leone on the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West as well. Um, so he they've they had worked together before as well, and then it's. You know, a, a lot of praise has has been put on Ennio Morricone, but mm-hmm. this score is just gorgeous. And it's a shame that the film never got nominated for an Academy Award because it got disqualified due to technicality. Oh, explain that. So it was a, he he wasn't he wasn't able to be nominated for an Academy Award for the score. Because apparently in the theatrical cut he wasn't credited in the open title in the opening credits, and because of that, he uh, the film his score was disqualified from the Oscars. Terrible. Yeah, because I think I don't I don't know what else was was happening that year, but I feel like he would have been a shoe in. And the fact that he had never won one until recently is just. But he's also the only person to win a Lifetime Achievement Award and then win an Oscar afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, 1984. 1984 was a good year for film. What was it, what was all going on that year? 1984 is my favorite year in film. Okay. Um, let me just Google it. Yeah, anytime somebody asks, what's your favorite year for film, which I don't get asked a lot, but when I do, it's 1984. Um, Ghostbusters, Gremlins. um, Terminator came out. Just it was a stacked year for films. Sounds like it. Okay. But yeah, like it's, I'm okay. So we had Dune came out. Amadeus came out. Uh, Dreamscape came out. So it was also a big year for like epics then too. Purple so. Rain, The Last Starfighter. I mean, just Starman. Um, Fox. Star it, it was a great year for film. It's it's almost it, it's interesting too because as we were wa- as I was watching this movie, I kept forgetting that it was 1984 because it just it didn't feel like the 80s. Mm-hmm. Where there in the 80s were a time of all this, you know, really glossy productions, and not to say this isn't, but it felt glossy in the way that like The Godfather felt glossy. It it felt very much of its time, but in the past. Yeah, it's still it's number three for 1984. I'm just pulling up a list on IMDb, um, 1984. But we had the Terminator, Amadeus, Once Upon a Time in America, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters, Nightmare on Elm Street, 
Uh, this is Spinal Tap, Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, The Karate Kid, The NeverEnding Story, um, 16 Candles, The Killing Fields, Police Academy, 1984, Romancing the Stone, Dune. The, it was stacked. So that when this film was released in theaters, it had some stiff competition. That's probably another reason why it didn't do very well. It did $5 million in the box office in America. Which isn't... It's not bad, but it's not great considering it cost $30 million to make. Yeah. And... If, but like all those those films that you're with, not all of them, but a lot of them were, you know, popcorn films. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with, but a movie like this is going to have a hard time competing with that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely will. Because like Scorsese found a way uh, to make gangster films that are that feel quote unquote fun. And while this is a great movie, it's not fun. You know, if I if 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 I was a kid. 1984 and i had the well maybe not a kid because i wouldn't be going to see this but if i was a you know college age person and i had the choice between seeing once upon a time in america or gremlins Mm -hmm. i'm probably gonna go see gremlins probably gonna go see gremlins yep that's what i did yeah when i was a kid like that my dad used to take me to, to movies that he thought would expand my um repertoire of films so i got to go see like Return of a Man Called Horse when I was five. And the only thing I remember in that film is Richard Harris being hung up by these hooks in him and some kind of ceremony. Like, the shocking stuff is what I remember. And I, mm-hmm. He took me to all these like heavy drama films. And I, we never went to go see this film. But, yeah, I, I don't think I'd be able to pay attention when I was 12. I don't no, think that this is... Sometimes when those film, films like that are, I don't even want to say forced upon you because I don't think your dad forced you, but you don't always have an appreciation for things. Like I no. love Westerns now, but when mm-hmm. I was a kid and my parents were watching them, they seemed like the most dull thing that I could ever watch. It was just boring, yeah. And like I love them now and I see how fun they can be, but why would I go see a Western when I could see Ghostbusters? Right. Yeah, something I really like got that. an appreciation for Sergio Leone's films uh, when I worked at a video store in the early 80s. Okay. Um, I really got, you know, because I rented them all. I got to bring them all home and and I really got into the Westerns. I really got into the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the Clint Eastwood Westerns. And that's when I really like started to love Westerns. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as a kid, they were just boring, you know. I, and then even as a kid, I didn't really like crime films. It wasn't until I got to about late high school, maybe early college, that I started growing an appreciation for them. Because mm-hmm. I, when I when I thought of crime films, I thought instantly thought of The Godfather, and I, while I hadn't watched it all the way through at a younger age, I had seen it on television and it seemed boring to me. Mm-hmm. I love it now, but I just assumed all crime films were like The Godfather. And funny enough, it was actually probably it was it was either either Scorsese or Tarantino that kind of changed that for me, realizing that there's it was a combination of that and then discovering the French New Wave and the way that they treated crime films and all of that. And um, I'm glad I saw this movie now because I don't definitely don't know if I would have had the mental capacity for it when I was young. Oh, yeah. not only its length, yeah. but it's there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack for me. When I was a kid, it was all horror and, you know, teenage comedies that I shouldn't be watching. 
Um, but I really, you know, I, I didn't like crime. I didn't like Westerns. I didn't like dramas. So I was a, I was a very uh, low attention span kind of kid. Give me something mm-hmm. flashy. But, you know, when I did see this, I, I, I loved it. I just, this is one of my favorite films. It really is. Where would you, for you, where would it rank amongst the Leone films that you've seen? Um, it's definitely up there. It's, it's, it's top three. I would say it's top three and it's hard to pick. You know, he's only got so many films. I know it's, it's one of those things that like, no matter he's made so few films that, that have all been really good. One of the films is going to have to be at the bottom. Right. Yeah. Once upon a time in the West was really good too. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was really good. Um, But I, I, you know, I got a soft spot for the Clint Eastwood, you know, fistful of dollars, a few dollars more. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I think this, I put this in top 10. It's really good. It's not a movie you can just watch casually. Like you've really got to be in the mood for it. You got to. Yeah. I actually had to break it up into two viewings just for that reason alone. Uh, However, this movie doesn't kind of an interesting, it's, it's really easy to break this movie up because since they're transitioning between past and present and kind of telling multiple stories at one time, it kind of has these very logical breaks Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Um, And, I almost feel like I appreciate it more doing that. Um, you know, I watched a good, like a two and a half hours of it one night. And then I was like excited to go back and see what was going to happen next. And I had a chance to like sit with everything I had seen. I had watched. So I would say, you know, for those of you out there, you know, who don't have the attention span for nearly four hour movie, I don't blame you. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, I, like I just got a bootleg cut of uh, the Kill Bill Whole Bloody Affair, and that's four hours, and I'm I, I'm excited for that, and that's a fast paced movie, and I'm still gonna have to break that up. So mm-hmm. like I you know I don't blame anyone who says they don't have the attention span for a four hour movie. So what I would say is if you're in, intrigued by this film and you want to watch it, watch it in chunks. You know every time they do a time period ch- shift get up go walk around mm-hmm. you know it's almost like watching you know a series on netflix just break it up if you need to yeah there's very few long movies like that that i can sit and watch start to finish like i, I like the movie gettysburg i don't know if you ever saw that um no but I have, my wife has and we have a copy of it yeah gettysburg is one of my one of my favorite films i can watch that from start to finish the follow-up guys and generals i gotta break that up but like the snyder cut i could watch that start to finish without breaks Mm -hmm. i love that movie that's what six hours yeah just about that yeah okay i've still not seen that one yet because i'm trying to make time for it yeah if you do a shameless on that let me let me know because i will definitely come on for that okay i'll let Um, you know it's not planned right now but that doesn't mean anything if Uh, the audience wants it the audience wants it yeah if anyone listening to this wants to hear me and chris house talk about um the Snyder cut have at it. We, we will do it. I will do it. <laughs> I'm a huge Snyder fanboy. I'm no shame. No shame. I love Snyder. I love his films. I know we, we, we you were, you were, you were going out to bat for that guy for the longest yeah. time. So yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, army of the dead. That was the first film after the pandemic. Well, during the pandemic, that's the first time I went back to a movie theater. That's how bad I wanted to see that movie. I, I risked the pandemic to go see it in the theater. That's awesome. You know, and I, I, 
I can't fault someone for when, when they they have a filmmaker that they go to bat for. You know, yeah. I I I go his his films are questionable quality at times, but Kevin Smith's my boy, and I'll support anything that that's showing. Hell, I was the yeah. only person who went to go see Yoga Hosers when he played at the Times. Uh, I saw Yoga Hosers and Tusk in the theater. Um, I remember those very fondly. I, I love that movie. I love Yoga Tusk. Ho- uh, Yoga, Hosers Yoga Hosers was a lot of fun. I was cackling in yeah. the theater. I think there was maybe one other person. It might have been you. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Probably me. <laughs> I was just cackling the entire time. Yeah, they're, they're fun movies. You know, they, he doesn't take himself seriously in those movies. Yeah. They just fun movies to watch. It looks like they were fun to make. So that Definitely. makes them more fun to watch. Definitely. So before we wrap up, was there anything else you wanted to say about once upon a time in America? Any favorite scenes, any favorite moments we, in this show, we call it the thrill house moment. The moment that while watching, it was kind of like your clincher, what hooked you into it. If there's anything like that, that you wanted to talk about. Um, really for me, like I mentioned earlier, my favorite scene is when the kids are, you know, kind of carefree walking through the streets of New York and the alleys. And then they're confronted by, um, well, I don't want to give a spoiler, but they're they're confronted by somebody, and that's my favorite scene. It's the scene yeah, that we're talking that's about. that's mine too. I love that entire section. Yeah, and it's gorgeous too. Like the matte mm-hmm. painting, it's just a gorgeous shot. It's I wouldn't even know that was a matte painting. Like I yeah. assumed it was. Yeah, but it's so effortlessly blended in. I would never have known. Yeah, actually, I didn't even know until you just mentioned it. Yeah, no, it's. <laughs> That's a great scene. The movie is is amazing. If you haven't seen it, definitely put it on your list. Put it on your shame list. Yes. Check it out and uh, write a comment. Let us know how you think. <laughs> no. See, you're perfectly fine at advertising stuff. You're doing well, my job for me. All right. <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, for me, it, it's probably it's probably the same bit. I, I loved that entire sequence, and that was kind of my clencher that made me want to con- I was going to continue watching it anyways, but it like, excited me to see what happened next and see how everything was going to be tied in. Yeah. And then I also have to say, just I love seeing him. I love seeing William Forsythe in things. Like he's yeah, been he in a lot really, of. He was really good in that too. He he's in a lot of movies, but he I don't feel like he necessarily gets the credit he always deserves. He's great. Um, but thanks a lot for coming on the show for with me today, Chris. Heck yeah. um, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the eighth year of the twisted Milwaukee twisted dreams film festival is coming up in October. Do you have your dates set yet? October 20th through the 22nd. Perfect. Um, I'll be there whether or not I have a film there is to be, to, to be seen, but I'll be there regardless. Cause I want to see the crazies. I want to see some other fun little movies. And um, I think you guys all should show up as well. And are you still doing the paranormal film festival as well? That's on hiatus. Okay, uh, might revisit that, but right now it's on hiatus. And then um, also, if you know, if if you want, I say also go give Chris House a follow on on the on on the internet. He is he's uh, I've learned a lot about what's going on behind the scenes of big motion pictures because of him. But then I've also learned a lot about like the history of magicians just from knowing you. Fun stuff, yeah. We will have a magic show at Twisted Dreams, too. We're going to have our spook show, which is always a good time. Surprisingly, of all the years I've gone, I've never been around for one of the spook shows. Uh, you'll want to check it out. It's it's a good time. All right. I'll have to check it out. So, as I said, everyone, make sure to uh, check out the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. Unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, the submissions will be closed. But submit to the ninth year. Mm-hmm. We'll be there. 
All right. So as as I say every time, guys, make sure you make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, and make sure you listen next time. Shame time, shame place, shameless picture show. And then an extra special thanks to fellow podcaster in front of the show, Austin Proctor, who actually had edited this episode. So if you want to support Austin Proctor and everything he does, be sure to check out the Fright Mares podcast. I am a, a occasional co-host on that show, but he does one of my favorite podcasts about the horror genre, and it should be one of your favorite podcasts, too. So thanks a lot for Austin Proctor for editing this episode. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band Ten Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.